Welcome to MediaPath. I'm Louise Palenker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. Here at MediaPath, we take your media consumption very seriously. And our mission is to ensure that you are enjoying only the finest content creations and entertainment delights. In service to these goals, today we bring you the collective works of writer, producer, director, author, blogger, podcaster, sportscaster, cartoonist, and Emmy winner Ken Levine. You know his work from MASH, Cheers, Frasier, his podcast Hollywood and Levine, and beyond. Ken will join us very shortly. But first, Fritz, what have you brought? Well, I'm going to talk about jury duty on Amazon Prime. Time Magazine said of the show, this show you should be watching right now. Now, like during the during the show, like now before you're done reading the ad, and I agree, very funny. It chronicles the inner workings of a jury trial through the eyes of a juror, Ronald Gladden, who is a solar contractor from San Diego. What he doesn't know is the jury summons is fake. Everyone in the courtroom is fake. They're an actor except him. It's punked meets the office. Matter of fact, the producers of the show uh, brazenly say they wanted a semi-improvised show like The Office, but set in a courtroom. Everything that happens inside and outside the courtroom is planned. Again, the only person who doesn't know it's planned is juror number six, Ronald Gladden. It was shot in an L.A. courtroom. The only star in the show is James Marsden, who plays himself a hunky narcissist, and he's really good at it. The actors are terrific and undetectable as actors. They really shine in the unforeseen circumstances and their improvisation around it. With each episode, the comedy sort of rises. There's a dozing juror, a tattooed airhead, a mystical foreigner. The judge is just flat on perfect. My favorite is the bailiff. Think Lizzo as a prison guard. A heavy African-American woman in a uniform who is hilarious. The episodes go from opening arguments to picking a four-person to closing arguments to deliberations to the verdict. The last episode is the reveal and the post-mortem where they assess how the victim did. All the actors introduce themselves. It's really, really entertaining. I don't know how they're going to do a season two if the jig is up on this formula, but it's pretty good. Wow. What a concept. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Fritz, I'm going to talk about reality. It's a movie on what is now called Max. You know, I don't know mm-hmm. why they named their network after everybody's grandson, but okay. <laughs> Come on in. Oh, is it? Garrett, our, our intern has his summer buzz working. All right. So on June 3rd, 2017, reality winner returned from running errands to find two FBI agents waiting at her home in Augusta, Georgia. A 25-year-old Air Force veteran, multi-language linguist, national security contractor, pet owner, and yoga instructor winner spends the next two hours of her life in a stark back room of her house being interrogated about the leaking of a classified document to the news site Intercept. The document in question addressed Russian cyber attacks which had infiltrated our voting systems. Hmm. This film is inspired by Tina Satter's 2021 Broadway play, Is This a Room?, with a script that wrote itself. It's the FBI verbatim transcript of their recorded interview with reality. The storytelling is enhanced with realities, actual social media posts, and period news segments. This film examines truth, power, and the U.S. legal system through the lens of one intimate, disconcerting, and very real encounter provoking each of us to consider and discuss what we would do in similar circumstances. Sydney Sweeney is wrenchingly gripping as reality as she comes to realize that the reality of her actions is about to encircle and ensnare her. 
The film opens with Winter working in a cubicle surrounded by TV screens blaring Fox News. Later, as she's being interrogated, we learn that she filed multiple complaints to her bosses about Fox News playing nonstop in the office, suggesting that Al Jazeera or a slideshow of people's pets would have been more appropriate, considering <laughs> that the lies emanating from the TV screen were being contradicted by the secret data in her computer systems. She urgently felt that the public deserved the truth. Unlike a certain former president caught with ballrooms and bathrooms full of top secret documents and sent home with his staff and his passport, Reality, who had clumsily attempted to warn us about the dangers he posed, was taken immediately into custody, sentenced, tried, and incarcerated for five years. Wow. Yeah. As fresh as today's headlines. Pretty much. That's on Max, right? Yeah. I don't know if, can I do that? They combined like seven or eight different streaming services. No, Max. it's just that hey, HBO is now called, HBO Max is now just called Max. Oh, okay. But yeah, it should just, it should just like pop you right back in as, as it did for me okay. with your password. Mm -hmm. So let's introduce our wonderful guest. He is Ken Levine. He is an Emmy-winning sitcom writer, director, producer, and baseball announcer whose podcast is called Hollywood and Levine. You have seen his work in MASH, Cheers, Frasier, The Simpsons, Wings, Everybody Loves Raymond, and on and on. Ken is the author of three books, including The Me Generation, by me, growing up in the 60s. He's a contributing cartoonist to The New Yorker and fresh from the picket line where he is ensuring that future scripts are not written by AI or FBI transcripts. He is our very special guest today. Please welcome Ken Levine. Thank you, guys. Hey, Ken. Wow, I'm proud to know me. Jeez. <laughs> it's exciting, isn't it? <laughs> so give us like a little bit of an update on the strike. And because uh, I was listening to your podcast about it, where like impressively on Ken's podcast, he very often just like Rachel Maddow's his way through 45 minutes of just talking. And it's absolutely brilliant. Well, thank you. I, I love being compared to Rachel Maddow, you know, <laughs> even our hair. <laughs> uh, yep, there's a family what, resemblance. Yeah. What's going on with the strike is we're just picketing. The uh, studios are not meeting with us. I don't think anything is going to happen until after the uh, studios deal with the actors. And the actors have overwhelmingly agreed that uh, they're willing to go out on strike if need be. So I think if the actor's deal is either settled or they go out on strike, then something will happen. So I'm guessing August, maybe. So is a SAG strike going to make things worse for the writers or better? Will it advance no, their better. opinion? Oh, yeah, okay. better, because that will really shut things down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And okay. a lot of a lot of what you're striking over has to do with residuals, and there are no reruns. I mean, you kind of made the point that we, we it's kind of snuck up on us, but now if something airs, it airs once, and then it goes over to whatever streaming service is associated with that network. And that was like, it's like telling waiters, well, you can work, but you're not going to get any tips. Like, that was yeah. part of the... Exactly. Yeah. And the directors, well, the membership has not ratified it yet, but the directors have worked out a tentative deal with the producers and they're listing all of these uh, you know numbers like our residuals will go up 80 percent you go wow that's pretty good except their residuals at the moment are three dollars <laughs> right so Zero. It, it goes up to five <laughs> so it's like whenever you see percentages instead of actual numbers <laughs> chances are ah. 
Dis, disregard them, yeah. And what's so interesting, too, is that it would be so easy to calculate, you know, how many views. Well, all the data is now available. So if you want to know how many people are watching an episode of MASH that you wrote, those numbers are there. They could easily just hand it over to an accountant and say, this guy should make X amount of dollars because this many people watched his work today. Right. And what a surprise that they don't want to divulge that information. <laughs> yeah, right. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let me ask you a question about AI, because that's the big uh, cocktail and dinner discussion lately. Here, here's my feeling, and see if you agree with this. I, I'm, you know, because they're already using limited AI in the news business. Uh, my informants on the inside tell me, but it's all factual. Since uh, they write in thirty-second bursts, they'll write a thirty-second burst with facts: who, what, where, when, and why. But when you get to sitcom writing and, and procedural writing and there's humanity involved and there's humor involved, that's where you're going to have to have writers. Do you think AI is ever going to be able to duplicate the beauty of Fraser lines or any of those things? I think it's going to be a long time before that happens. It will be a long time, but it learns. And oh. the uh, scenes, the comedy scenes that AI is turning out now are pretty rudimentary and terrible although you know not as bad as some of the sitcoms i've actually seen <laughs> but uh they will improve they they will get better Oof. you know even the you know you mentioned how they use it for news and when i started out my very first job i was working at a radio station in los angeles called kmpc mm -hmm. and they were a big full service station we had major personalities like Gary Owens. They had sports. They had the UCLA Bruins, the Los Angeles Rams with Dick Enberg as their announcer. They were the big full service station in LA. And I worked in the newsroom in the sports department. And my job was to uh, write the sports cast for the, the newscast every half hour, which is basically updating scores. And in the summer, back in 1969 1970 there was no sunday night baseball so in the summer everything was done by five o'clock and a lot of the sports wire guys who would work sunday would merely uh just write four or five sports casts and they would rotate them and they'd go home mm -hmm. and i said to our newscaster we had a newscaster named bruce anson and i said to him can i try writing a news story because i rather take this opportunity to learn and he said okay sure and he gave me a news story to write and i wrote it and he went through and this is wrong is there a better way of saying this this fact needs to be here and i worked for weeks until i finally got a story that was good enough Hang on one second, I hear the doorbell. Well, Kel's ordered a new computer if you're playing at home, and his computer is arriving and he has to sign for it. So it's an exciting day in the neighborhood. This guy, incidentally, I don't want to embarrass him in front of his face, yeah, but say all this stuff, yeah. he's written maybe on the top five sitcoms in the last 30 or 40 years of yeah, television. Yeah, this guy is royalty. MASH, Cheers, Frasier, The Simpsons, Wings, Everybody Loves Raymond, Becker, Dharma, and Greg. 
uh, he he's the top guy. He really is, right. and 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 has done many other things. We're going to talk to him about being a baseball play-by-play announcer, mm-hmm. uh, being a radio announcer. And you and you and I have both read his book, The Me Generation by Me, Growing Up in the Sixties yeah, by Kennedy. I Kennel can't Bunch. wait to talk to him about that. Yeah. I think we have a lot more in common than he would be willing to admit. No, no, you you, you pretty much had the same. Word. I was just. Thin oh, white... can we see it? It arrived. It arrived. What, what kind of computer it? is it? Hold it up. Let's see it. Nice. Do you it's, the do new, some... it's the new Air Mac Air, whatever. You... My son works at Apple Computer. Oh, too bad. And uh, it was his team that built this particular model. Wow, so I'm very wanna, proud of that. Do you want to do some unboxing? It's very popular <laughs> on the internet. Yeah, yeah. All right, nah. we'll save that. Now, All right, listen. I'll, I'll deal with you guys. Anyway, I, I apologize for, oh, don't, the, don't be, uh, listen. for, for the delay. No. So, you benefited from saying, the mirror. Go ahead. As I was saying, it took weeks until I had written a story that he felt was good enough to go on a 10 o'clock Sunday night newscast. And I learned more about writing and brevity from Bruce Anson than any English teacher that I ever had. And, uh, you know, again, I don't think he would have approved of whatever the AI story would be that whatever AI spit out. Uh, There's there's even an art to that. Man. Right, it's right, it's right. a it's a frightening thought. Well, I, I'm just I'm a huge fan of your work. I loved your book for anyone such as myself that grew up in suburban America or as I call it, Caucasia. It's a wonderful book. <laughs> I, and I, I had this thought if George Lucas let you punch up American graffiti, it would have been an hysterical and a much better movie. It's all of the it's all of what you go through in suburban America malls and trying to get the attention of a girl. And it's really. It's really wonderful, and I enjoyed it very but much. But he intersects well, it with world events, so that makes it... Yeah, well, that puts it in context, yeah, which is he, great. Yeah, he, he gives it the context. that we're, We all grow up within an era, and we're all informed and enriched and disturbed by events as we watch them unfold around us. Sometimes they intimately impact us, such as Vietnam, etc. But your book really does a great job of creating that weave that is... Yeah, our, because it was in the background. Yeah. I mm-hmm. mean, all of those events did take place and you're right some you know caused a greater effect than others but mostly you know i was looking to get a job i was looking mm-hmm. to get a car i was looking to get laid mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> you know so whatever, which, are, which whatever, of the three was know, more important to you golf with tomkin whatever yeah <laughs> a car Am makes I it get laid <laughs> well you know and it's good for anybody there are people you know listen we have we have listeners in austria but i and so i'll tell you that this is about life in Los Angeles, but it's not about life in Los Angeles. People think of L.A. as the glitter of show business, but the San Fernando Valley, where you grew up, Woodland Hills, is classic middle-class suburbia. Went to Taft High School. Did growing up in that environment uh, give you the groundwork for writing shows that clicked with middle America? It seems like you had that great sensibility in your musings about yourself. Um, well, I'm not sure. Um I mean, what really helped me, and I guess it was because I was able to sort of relate to it on one level, was when I was a young teenager, I watched the Dick Van Dyke show, (laughs) and I absolutely fell in love with Laura Petrie. 
And uh, I thought to myself, well, wait a minute. You could get a girl like Laura Petrie by being a comedy writer? Boom. You don't have to be a football star? <laughs> it was, like, it was well, aspirational. I could do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I could do that. There's, there's hope for me. You know, I can't throw a spiral, but maybe, maybe there's hope for me. Uh, so I think that show kind of guided me uh, along. But, um, you know, it just sort of depends on what shows you write. Um, interestingly, when there was the draft um, and people were being sent to Vietnam, in 1969, they had the first lottery where based on your birthday, you were either called up or not. If you had like one through 150, chances are you would be drafted. And if you had number 238, you were pretty safe. But they did it this way, feeling, well, okay, this is a, a more equal way of choosing people. My draft number was four. Whoa. Yikes. Okay, four. So I immediately got into an Armed Forces Radio Reserve Unit where ultimately I met my partner, David Isaacs, mm. and we had the opportunity to write MASH. We could not have written MASH with any authority had we not both been in the Army, because you have to go through basic training and regular training and two weeks every summer. So we had a pretty good handle on military life and the insanity of it, we wrote our first MASH script, which became our golden ticket. It got us jobs around town. It got us on staff of MASH, and MASH really launched our career. So when I think back to it, had I not been in the Army, I would not have met my partner. I would not have been able to write MASH, and who knows? So it, it proved to be a blessing. Mm -hmm. uh, well, you couldn't have convinced me the night that the uh, lottery oh, uh, numbers were announced, however. So scary. Uh, okay, I want to tell you the parallel track that you and I have been on, unbeknownst to either of us for all this time. First of all, we're thin and white and have the same insecurity about women for our entire youth. <laughs> Second of all, just before they had the lottery situation, I was a victim of the draft. Because during the draft, I went, the first college I went to was Salem College in Clarksburg, West Virginia, which is a, a bastion of uh, underachievement. And I went there after high school. And if you dropped below a C level during the draft, you immediately, within 60 days, got a letter from the Defense Department saying, we're considering you for employment. Please come down and take it physical. <laughs> they make so, it sound like a compliment. Yeah, yeah they do. Come on down. There's snacks. <laughs> It'll be a lot of fun. <laughs> so uh, so I went down and I and I... I, everybody at that point, this was 68, 69, everybody was going to Vietnam. I said, I honestly, I don't mind defending my country or doing something for my country. I would rather do it in a non-gun-oriented job. So I picked up my clothes. I'm naked and I had a pile of clothes and I went down the line of recruiters and I signed up for the Navy, which turned out to be the single greatest thing I ever did. I went to boot camp. Then I was assigned to the USS John F. Kennedy in Norfolk, Virginia, where I immediately entered the public affairs department and signed up for Armed Forces Radio and Television, which gave me my career. So for four years, I did newscasts, I did disc jockeying, and, and it was a gift. 
And maybe you'll agree with this, having worked for AFN yourself, the beauty of that job was regardless of how bad you sucked, you would never get fired. I was terrible, but you don't get fired. You're in the Navy. You're there as long as they want you. And it, it introduced me to my career. So I thank Armed Forces Radio and Television all the time. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, you know, it's like the one job where if you get fired, you could get killed. So it's, <laughs> it's nice that there's a certain amount of, of job security there. Oh, uh, It was fun. But anyway, you and I learned in the same spot. That's so funny. Did you go to Fort Benjamin Harrison for training, or did you go? I did. Yeah, I, I, did. I didn't get to go there. I went to a ship immediately. Oh. Yeah. yeah. No, I got to go to Fort Benjamin Harrison, which is in Indianapolis, mm -hmm. and it was more like a college campus, actually. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was actually very fun, and it was like all services mm -hmm. were there. This was the only public information um, training yeah. center. And uh, I remember for the television department, we had to produce like a five minute documentary hmm. on something. And I did my five minute documentary on silent movie star Lillian Gish. <laughs> needless to say, uh, everyone was shaking their heads. Like, did it yeah. become a training film? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> well, wow. you grew up kind of fascinated by media, and you were a radio nerd. And yes. I, I love in your book when you talk about making radio pen pals. Now, we would do that with Tiger Beat. You could go to the end of the Tiger Beat and write to other kids who liked the same stars that you liked. So where, how did you find your radio pen pals and talk a little bit uh, about that? I, I find it, this is like pre-internet finding folks like you. Okay, well, this is even beyond geekiness <laughs> in that I, I loved radio stations. We're talking now the um, the late 60s, and I loved Top 40 stations, KHJ in Los Angeles. Uh, I had heard about WABC in New York, and I would send letters to radio stations, and I would ask for copies of samples of their shows and also could they send me their jingle packages i was very <laughs> interested in radio station jingles who collects radio station jingles and uh some of the stations would say well there's this other crazy guy <laughs> in <too>. great <laughs> neck new york who also collects jingles you two and talk to each other rather than us why don't, why yeah. don't we do that <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and uh, and I, I contacted him and he said, well, I've got another friend in Pittsburgh who's also doing this. So we we kind of found each other. And uh, like I say, the conversations were so geeky that it's amazing that that I'm not still a virgin today. Well, <laughs> you know, I I entered radio in my early 20s and I it. I, I was going after sitcoms, but I wound up in radio, as career paths will will have it. And I I witnessed how all the guys in radio would talk about air checks, and you know, and and what they've heard because it's it's the '80s. There's no internet, and it you you they would share tapes and dub them, and they were. Mm -hmm. They were way into it. And like, did you hear the, how he talked up a record? And like, and you had to hit the post. And it was like, <laughs> so that you'd finish talking right when the lyric kicked in. And they, I they, can still do that. It's me the too. Most I do it useless in the car. skill. <laughs> I, I know it. 
Yep. But they were geeked out on it. And it's, it, you know, I think it's a, it's an art form that's kind of like a wave that's kind of made its way to the sand. I don't know if that's... It's dead. Yeah. 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 It's, if DJs it's, do it now, yeah. it's irritating. I, I listen on Sirius XM. Just, just be quiet. Play the record. Well, you know, folks could do it at a wedding, I imagine, I, you know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they were real. And you got into, in your book, like, talking talking about the jocks that you were hearing from across the country that really were kind of, like, irreverent and, you know, getting away with saying some stuff that was super edgy, you know, for yeah, the time. Yeah, Dan Ingram at WABC oh, Maybe the best top 40 jock in the world. And uh, before him, Ron none. Lundy was the midday guy. And yeah. Herb Oscar Anderson. And uh, you also are a big fan of Robert W. Morgan, who I think is one of the greats. The man right, who could be so Angeles sarcastic and, and so funny. And the real Don Steele. And the real Don Steele. Unbelievable. Yeah. The real Don Steele wound up working for Premier, the radio network that um, that I was a part of. And like I, I rode in a lot of limos with, with him, and he wasn't sober. <laughs> <laughs> He yeah. once fell off our couch. We had him over for dinner, <laughs> and he once fell fell off our couch. <laughs> he was brilliant. Yeah, was I worked great... at two radio stations with him. Oh wow! Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we both had the same mentor, which was Gary Owens. And I'll quickly tell you my Gary Owens story. So okay. I'm coming into I'm writing for Rick D's at Kiss FM, and the sister station was an AM station where Gary did mornings. And then the maybe during the Reagan administration, you could, ha- you could take your FM station and just broadcast it on your AM. You didn't have to hire a separate, separate staff, so you could just simulcast. So everybody was fired, except they kept Gary as their dignitary. And they gave him an office that was across the hall from mine. And they would just roll him out at parties to greet people, you know, because it, it was Gary. <laughs> so he was mostly just sitting in his office. So when I when I was done writing my shows, I'd just go and sit with him and he would tell me old Hollywood stories and he would tell me how he invented and created Ken Levine. And it, it was he was extremely proud. Well, he writes for MASH now, you know, and he was extremely proud of you and that that's he knew that that's what I wanted to do. So he was like a father the way he spoke of you. He he really was uh, quite proud. Lovely man. Here's the great thing. with Gary Owens. Mm-hmm. I tell this story. Um, when I was working uh, as an intern at KMPC and Gary Owens was doing afternoon drive from three to six. And this was 1969, so he was also on Laugh-In, which was far and away the number one show in America. And back then, the number one show in America is getting 35, 40 million people watching every single week. And I would write some comedy material, and I would just, you know, give it to him. And, you know, he would, you know, occasionally use some of it. And I was just thrilled that he felt my stuff was good enough to actually use. And a couple of times he would have me uh, on the air doing a bit with him. Like I said, I was absolutely thrilled. So one day I get a call from George Slaughter's office. He was the uh, producer of Laugh-In. You know, could I meet with Mr. Slaughter tomorrow at four o'clock? And I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> I don't know why, but okay. So I go to NBC Burbank. You know where it is, Fritz. <laughs> and, uh, and I meet with George Slaughter. And unsolicited, Gary gave some of my comedy material 
to George Slaughter oh. and said, here's somebody who might be good. And George Slaughter offered me a job writing oh on Laugh-In. Oh, man. I'm 19 years old. And here's the kicker. I had to turn it down. Because you had to be home by it dark? It was a full-time job. I said, can I do this part-time? And he goes, no. It paid like $50,000. I'm 19 years old. $50,000, oh you know, back then. Today, it's like, uh, we'll pay you a quarter of a million dollars. Yeah. Um, but um, this was before the lottery, and I was going to UCLA at the time, and I knew if I quit UCLA, I'd be drafted in like two months. So uh, I I had to turn the job down. But how nice of Gary to do that. Again, completely unsolicited. And that verified your own talent to yourself, oh, too, hearing yeah. it from George yeah. Slaughter. That's and cool. He, he was always doing that. Like, he, we would go to lunch at Musso and Frank's. Yeah, and I, me too. <laughs> yeah, right? And he'd say, uh, you know, you should write, you should submit uh, jokes to uh, Jay Leno. And I said, well, I don't, I don't write topical, uh, I don't write topical jokes. He goes, yes, you do. And he put pull out USA Today and he would circle some premises, some news premises. He said, all you do, it's just, you know, I know how your mind works. This is just another form of, of writing. You circle a news premise and then you create a punchline. It's just like putting a puzzle together. And, you know, he, and I, I wound up, you know, with Fritz and I actually would do it together because... Jay wouldn't have accepted any jokes from Fritz Coleman, but like yeah, I was one floor above and, him, above the Tonight Show. <laughs> we were, yeah, we were above the, the Tonight Show, and we were just sitting in an office and write write jokes and fax them to Jay. And he used them a couple of times. Yeah, we got a lot point. in. We got like forty or yeah, so in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He used to buy jokes, and now that turned into a whole legal issue, so he didn't do it anymore after a while. Well, yeah, it, the first money I made as a writer was writing jokes for Joan Rivers. Yeah, I did that. I got paid $5 yeah. for every joke that, that she bought. Yeah, when I got in that game, it was up to $10. It was $10 a joke for me, and I would say, to, and then they would send you a six-page legal draft of a release you had to sign, and I said, the paper is worth more than I've been paid for this joke. Yeah. I couldn't right. believe it. It's like sort of you finding know. out what babysitters today make, you know, because for, <laughs> you know, when during for boomers, it was 50 cents an hour for like 30 years. And then all of a sudden, you, you know, you talk to a babysitter and like, yeah, I just made seventy nine dollars. OK, I fine. Know, yeah. For letting a dog out. Great. Let me ask you something. So was MASH your first professional job? No. Uh, the first script that we got was the Jeffersons. Oh, wow. Uh, two white guys who got the Jeffersons. Perfect. And uh, we, in fact, ironically, we got the assignment and they gave us two weeks to write it. And those were the two weeks that we were going away on our annual reserve summer camp. And it's not like jury duty where you <laughs> no. can say, you know, this is kind of inconvenient. <laughs> I'll do it in the no. fall. No. You get one you postponement. Go. <laughs> so, so we go to Fort Ord for two weeks and uh, during down times and at night, you can picture we're in one of those big barracks like you see in Full Metal Jacket with <laughs> 60 double bunk beds and, yeah. uh, and all of the guys are smoking weed, listening to <laughs> Jimi Hendrix, playing craps, whatever. And he and I are sitting in a corner going, Wheezy, come over here. <laughs> <laughs> that's so cool. I was a page on the Jeffersons, and that's how I got my nickname Wheezy because my name is Louise. 
Uh-huh. So, uh, yeah. Which we episode? Had to, we had to break into an office to type the script. <laughs> so which episode was it? It was from season two, and it was called Moving On Down, and there was a, a rival cleaners that opened up, and it affected uh, George's uh, confidence. That's so funny. Yeah. Let me Moving ask you something. Down. Yeah. Down. So you, you wrote on MASH. Uh, I have two questions about MASH. First of all, did you sense the importance, the iconic nature of this show when you were on it? I mean, was it already this huge... Um, um, uh, iconic television show when you were on it, or, or it, it hadn't developed to that. Point. We knew we knew that it was a great show and that it was very prestigious and that it was an absolute honor to be able to write for it. And it was created by Larry Gelbart. That was my who second was question. The Mozart of of comedy. That was my second question about Larry Gelbart. I met him a yeah, couple of times. Larry, and there's a there's a legend tough. about him. You tell me I if this is true. I can't say enough about him. Oh, I know. Nicest, he was brilliant. He was brilliant. Nicest human being too. So brilliant. And um so we knew we were on a, a very prestigious show. We wrote uh, an episode. They liked it so much they kept feeding us episodes that season and based on our MASH episode, we got a job writing an episode for the Tony Randall show, which was at MTM. And MTM, which had the Mary Tyler Moore show and the Bob Newhart show, oh my gosh. Uh, it was really the, you know, Camelot of, of television for writers. And that's where we wanted to be. And based on our Tony Randall show script, we got hired to be on staff of Tony Randall. And we loved it. We were just thrilled. And at the end of the season, we were offered a higher position on the Tony Randall show, but we were also offered MASH. Mm. Wow. And as much as we loved MTM and we loved the guys that we were working with, you know, the opportunity to go to MASH, it's like, you got to take it. <laughs> yeah, I, I wanted to, you, you mentioned Larry Gelbart, and I wanted to ask you a question about him. I met him at a couple of uh, charity functions. I just loved him. He was very supportive. And there's a there's a rumor that if, if he was looking for a line, if a line wasn't strong enough in the script and he was in the room with the writers, he would go stand in a corner facing the wall and think up a new joke that would be infinitely funnier than the joke that had been put on the page. Is that true? Or he just let me think and he'd go in the corner and stand in the corner until he came up with a better joke? We never saw that. Uh, what I did see once was we're working on a script and we dictated the script to uh, a writer's assistant. And the writer's assistant we had took shorthand and was very, very good at it. And Larry is pitching out this speech. And it's hilarious, but he's just pitching it out at a mile a minute. And she goes, whoa, 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 I, I slow down. I can't get all of this. And Larry wow. said, just get half and kept going. <laughs> and the half that she didn't get was better than oh my God. anything else yeah. that you could find. He was also the type of guy that when you would turn in a script, you turn in a draft, at the end of the day at 5.30, he would call you at home at 6.30 and say how much he loved the script. Oh, Aww. man. Yeah. Can you give us any plots of, of some of the episodes that you wrote? Uh, we wrote the one that was point of view of the soldier 
where it's like you are the soldier and you experience the injury and go through the MASH unit. Uh, we wrote the one where Hawkeye is temporarily blind. Uh, God, we wrote 20 of them. Uh, it was about the <laughs> Korean War. We but wrote the... Goodbye Radar. We wrote, we wrote that. We actually wrote the very first Charles script, although it didn't get filmed until later in the season. We would go out to the Malibu Ranch and film one day a week per episode. Mm -hmm. And you would do that in the summer when it was light. So you could be filming from six o'clock in the morning until 8.15 at night. But once you got into October and you got out of daylight savings time, then it really made no sense. So if there was a show that didn't require going out to the ranch, then we usually would hold that back to the end of the season. So um, in this case, it was a show about a poker game. Hmm. So even though it was the first Charles episode that was written, it didn't get filmed until the end of October, and it was shown uh, later on in the season, The Merchant of Korea. Hmm. It's a single-camera sitcom shoot, correct? And there's no audience. So, And you're a person that likes an audience. How is it to write those jokes? Is it um, more intimidating writing this stuff and trying to get the timing without the benefit of laughter? It, it is. It also allows you to write different kinds of jokes. Mm -hmm. I mean, one thing that we did on MASH is we just loaded that show up with with jokes. Mm -hmm. And we would we would you know, joke to ourselves, you know, what if Hawkeye came into the swamp and said, hi, <laughs> 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 you know, instead of some funny line. Um, but looking back, I think it's one of the perks of watching MASH is that it is so dense with material yeah. that you can watch a show that you haven't seen in a while and there's so many jokes and maybe there's a few jokes that you don't even remember. It, it holds up. It's so, still chance, so funny. So funny. Yeah, it gave yeah. us a chance to do like reference jokes that we knew were three percenters as we used to call them you know if you're doing an adolf manju joke uh, you better not do it in front of an audience uh, that's interesting that's an interesting point you can really amuse yourselves and those folks at home that uh you know that are into stuff that, that no one else in their family gets but they do and, and the thing right. was based on the Korean War, but the but, but but it resonated because it was in context of the Vietnam War. So, were you able to do more topical things that would, you know, resonate with the audience in that era? Um, a little bit, uh, but we we never pointed to the parallel at all. Um, but yeah, look, the show was was very liberal. Uh, in fact. A couple of years after I worked on MASH, I was summoned to jury duty. What? <laughs> and I was impaneled, and it was a trial. There was like a gangland shooting, and it would have been like a four-week trial, and it was the middle of pilot season. It was very inconvenient. The judge was not letting anybody off, and uh, they get to me. And one of the lawyers says, 
do you have any issues with handguns? And I said, well, I was the head writer of MASH and took it upon myself as a personal crusade to warn 30 million people every week about the dangers of handguns. And he goes, your excuse. Awesome. Wow. wow. Not everybody could use that excuse, but that's great. I wanted you guys to also share notes on your James Brown concert experiences because reading yours. He went to James Brown concert too. He, I got he was it. the only one. white boy at his show. Yeah, I was the only white boy at mine. It was at the Shrine Auditorium. It was me and my terrified date. And well, you were brave enough to take a woman. I went with my friend. It was a great show, and I didn't feel that I was in any danger. No, not at all. She's talking about a piece I wrote about my. I loved R and B music as did you when I was growing up, Mm -hmm. and James Brown was Mm -hmm. the Godfather and all. And uh, we cut school when I was a senior, and we hitchhiked down to the Uptown Theater in North Philadelphia, North Street, not far from Temple University, and. Uh, went into this show and and uh, it, when it became apparent that we were like two Q-tips in a sea of chocolate, it was. Uh, I, I thought, ooh, are we going to? I think we'll make it home tonight. I don't. This is not looking good. We were treated. I, I think people had respect for us for for being there. It, there was no danger at all. And this was Same at a point me. beyond some of those concerts that he did in the other R and B acts, where the blacks and whites were on opposite sides of the theater. No, it was everybody. It was us just there, and it was it was a blast. He was my hero, James. Yeah. Brown. Yeah, I saw James Brown. I saw Ike and Tina Turner. There you go. Uh, oh, yeah. Love that stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Still do. Mm-hmm. Me too. Yeah. So t- talk about your date. Well, in, in other yeah, words, I, you... think, I think that's pretty much what broke us up was yeah. when I took to a James <laughs> Brown concert. <laughs> right. She didn't have the same kind of enthusiasm for the evening. Yeah, this wasn't, this wasn't going to the Birmingham football stadium and seeing the doors in Jefferson Airplane. This was going downtown to the Shrine Auditorium to see James Brown. But it was a much better show than the Doors oh, and yes. uh, Jefferson Airplane. Mm, yeah, he was the greatest live performer ever. We oh. also had a we also had a similar another again parallel tracks. I was reading your book and I was saying, oh my god, this guy's lived my life, and thank you for writing a much better job of it than I would have. But we also had a similar uh, idea, and that would be our crush on Ann Gillian. But yours got much farther than mine did. Mine just was through the television. Oh, well, mine, uh, when I was in the seventh grade, Parkman Junior High, uh, Anne was a student, was in my class. We had a music class. And the teacher, who was really a sadist, wanted to hear all of us sing and that way she could determine who was bass or who was out. Oh, God. You know? <laughs> so so one by one, we all had to humiliate ourselves. And then all of a sudden, this angelic blonde belts out somewhere over the rainbow. <laughs> and And I am absolutely smitten. And then next up is me. And I'm, you know, oh, the tumbling tumbleweed. <laughs> My voice is cracking. Uh, but that was that was Anna Seda. That was her real last name, Lithuanian. And uh, and we became friends. And at the time, she was doing Gypsy, and she did, you know, uh, Disney shows and things like that. Already she a star. How off. old was she then? 
she was uh, 12, 13. Man, and already, already a star. Yeah. yeah. It's like she would go off and do the Twilight Zone. And it's so weird because when you think back to, say, girls that you had a crush on in junior high, you sort of have a vague picture of them in your mind. But I can watch that episode of the Twilight Zone and there she is. Wow. <laughs> there she is, as she was. Um, and uh, I'm friends with Anne to this day. We've remained friends all these years. How did the kids react to her in school? You know, there were a number of kids who were also child actors. Uh-huh. So it wasn't that big a deal, although it's like, okay, Anna's going to be gone for two weeks to do Sammy the Whacked Out Seal or some <laughs> stupid <laughs> Disney thing. Uh, but we were we were just you know kind of used to it. And she then transferred, I think like in the ninth grade, to a Catholic school. And I was crushed. I tried to get my parents... <laughs> <laughs> to, to transfer yeah. you? No, they to have Torah study. I promise. <laughs> yeah, but, oh, that's uh, funny. Man, that that didn't work out too well. But talk, yeah, talk about your two and a half appearances on the dating game. Because I guess growing up in LA, there's different fun adventures that a teenager, you know, can have than in Cleveland, perhaps. Yeah, you can't go on a dating game in Cleveland. No, <laughs> no. Generally, no. Um, so at the time. My father worked at KABC Radio. He was uh, an account executive at KABC. And they had put out the word, the dating game, that they were looking for people. So I applied and I went down to a studio on Vine Street in Hollywood with about 25 other guys. And I said right up front, I said, look, my father works for ABC Radio. If that's a problem, if that's a conflict, let me know. Let's save everybody a lot of time and I'll just go home. They said, no, that's fine. We've even had occasions where our own staffers have had to. <laughs> oh, my fill God. It. They didn't have. Okay. Any, yeah. <laughs> so they didn't have a deep bench. <laughs> no. Yeah. So I'm in a room, like I say, with 30 bachelors and we're each given a number. And then somebody is calling out these stupid questions. Bachelor number 18, if you were a pickle, (laughs) what jar would you want to be? You know, just these (laughs) idiotic questions. And I answered my questions and I got a call that night to be on the dating game. Because you were funny, I'm sure. Because I was funny. Yeah. So I went on the dating game and I could give a shit about (laughs) the date. I'm on national television. I wanted to be funny. Did a couple of laughs. Heck yeah. yeah. Exactly. So I got laughs, did not get picked, but they had me come back and do the alumni show. Same thing. It was very funny. Didn't get, you know, to go to the Indio Date Festival or whatever <laughs> stupid thing. <laughs> <laughs> and then they called me for the nighttime Dating game. Ooh. Oh boy. Okay. Moving now, up to the big leagues. Yeah. Yep. You get trips to Barcelona and Paris Whoa. and Hawaii. So this was the big deal. Yeah. So um, 
at the time, there was an engineer strike at ABC, and they walk us through rehearsal, and one of the camera guys goes, oh, guess one of the camera guys worked at KBC Radio and said, oh, well, that's Cliff Levine's son. And they went, what are you talking about? And he says, well, his father uh, is a salesman at KBC. And they came and got me and threw me off. Wow. Oh. So it, yeah. it, 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 there's no problem for the earlier the show. But the it didn't no, yeah, no, because they didn't know. They didn't, whatever, yeah. So, so they threw me off. And uh, a couple of years later, I'm working at KMPC, and Jim Lang becomes one of our disc jockeys. Okay. <laughs> and Jim sees me in the hall, and, and he like, I, I know you. And I told him who I was, and, you know, oh, God, yeah. And he kind of remembered some of my answers. And, <laughs> um, and I told him what happened, and I got a call the next day in the newsroom from the dating game wanting me to be on. I said, is this the nighttime show? No, this would be the daytime show. I said, no, thank you. <laughs> it's yeah. like, I, I work I you up the in the minor show. leagues. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, wow. yeah. And here's, here's, here's an interesting uh, fact. Uh, I had Al Michaels on my podcast. Mm. And Al, when he was in his early 20s, worked for the dating game. Wow. wow. And he said to me, when was this? Because I was explaining my dating game story. Yeah. And I said, this would have been the fall of 1966. And he goes, I was the guy who picked you. Really? <laughs> wow. I was the guy who, who read the questions to all of you oh and selected God. you. Wow. I was the guy who then called you that night at home and told you you could come on the show. Oh, wow. That yeah, is so isn't that cool? That's yeah. so cool. Yeah. yeah. That is like well, so Well, speaking cool. of great sportscasters, you were a great sportscaster yourself, and I, I listened to your book on tape, and I said, you've got such a great voice. Yeah. I'm not surprised that you were a play-by-play -play announcer for the Orioles, the Seattle Mariners, the San Diego Padres. How, how did that start, and how long did it go? It went, I did about 10 years of Major League play-by-play, -play, three years of the minors started when I was in my mid-30s and uh, a friend of mine in college who wanted to be a baseball announcer uh, went up through the ranks and became an announcer for the San Francisco Giants, David Glass. And I remember going to a Dodger Giant game and looking up in the booth and, oh my God, there's Dave Glass actually announcing a Giant game sitting in the next booth from Vin Scully. Wow. <laughs> so I thought, you know what? If I don't pursue this now, I never will. And I got a tape recorder and a scorebook. And I went to the upper deck of Dodger Stadium and Anaheim Stadium for two years just calling games into the tape recorder. Really? And I would go to general admission because there was no reserved seats. Because you figure if somebody spends a lot of money and it's going to sit in a box seat. He doesn't need to have some idiot sitting next to him going, <laughs> there's a long drive to the right field. Good point. You know? So uh, I would sit, uh, you know, high above uh, home plate and the first row. And I was, you know, deep dish. 
I had a little <laughs> mixer. I had a crowd mic. I what? draped over the railing. Oh, I had man. the headset microphone. So my tapes sounded great. I didn't, but my tape <laughs> sounded great. And after two years of that, I said to my saintly wife, um, wouldn't it be fun to spend a bucolic summer <laughs> in some fun place? Boise, you know? Idaho at AAA yeah. Baseball. And I gave her a list of all of the minor league cities. There were about 120 of them. And I said, you select only the places that you wouldn't mind going. And those are the only places that I will submit my tapes to. That was a fantastic thing to do. And she she checked off 20 out of like 100. I was hoping she'd check off 60, but she checked <laughs> off 20. And so those are the only places I sent my tapes. And I got three offers. Uh, Vero Beach, Florida, which was the Dodgers. Former home of the Dodgers. That yeah. was the Dodgers summer camp. Yeah. My, my aunt was the stewardess on the Dodger plane. And the oh, name, right. and the name oh, of the boy, pilot on the Dodger plane stories. was Bump Holman. And she right. wouldn't tell me some of the things she got into when she was flying the Dodger plane. Oh, God. Oh, I could goodness. imagine. <laughs> <laughs> and um, like Eugene, Oregon, which was a short season, and Syracuse, New York, which was the AAA affiliate of the Toronto Blue Jays. So I took Syracuse and I was in Syracuse for a year. And my wife said afterwards, if I ever catch you with another woman, we can maybe go to counseling and possibly get over it. If you want to go back to Syracuse next year, we're getting divorced. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's a cold place but, in the winter. Understood. But I was able to get a job. You'll appreciate this, uh, Fritz. I was able to get a job uh, with the Tidewater Tides, wow. which is in Norfolk. Norfolk, Virginia, yep. Yeah, and basically Virginia Beach, which I was able to sell as San Diego with humidity. And I did two <laughs> years of the Tides. Plus, my wife is from New York, and she's a Mets fan, and they were the Mets AAA affiliate at ah. the time. And then there was an opening for the Baltimore Orioles, and I sent in my tape and miraculously got that job. Wow. Well, you're, you're, you're a polymath because you have lived the dream, uh, two dreams that American boys have, to be a major league play-by-play -play guy and also to write on the greatest sitcoms in the history of television. And he's I'm a cartoonist. And, and, and you're a cartoonist yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. Very lucky. Yeah. Well, you're, you're, I think you're, you're hardworking and you go after it. And what I love about your podcast, and folks, if you haven't listened to Ken's podcast, like he's so painfully honest about his opinions uh, on your podcast. Like even if you're talking about an actor who's still alive, that guy sucks. You know, you're, <laughs> it's so much fun to listen to. You're well, just, it helps to have aged out of the business. <laughs> well, but it's so fun to listen to people with a, strong opinions. You know, we're all we spend a lot of time just you know, being that person that's going to be invited back. And, yeah. you know, and you're just on there going, like, especially when it comes to the writer's strike. Or, yeah, that's the most recent one. People should really listen to that one. Yeah, it's very there's, there's, there's a lot of cursing, but uh, it's, it's, it's just very honest. And, but not in a mean way, just honest opinions. Well, I just lay out the issues. Most people don't know what all of the issues are. Right. And I just go one by one and explain them to people. 
Right, but it's even when you're when you're interviewing people or when you're answering questions from your listeners, you're just very frank, and I, I just find that to be very refreshingly entertaining. So, no, thank you. It's called Hollywood and Levine, and I strongly recommend that you listen to this podcast. Let me ask you a question about streaming television. Uh, um, it's a different kind of writing. I mean, I mean, the benefit is that you can be, you can go deeper and use more colorful language and broach subjects that you might not be able to broach on network TV. But it's different in that you're not writing to an act break. You're writing to launch the next episode, right? Have you had any experience with that? Is it a different kind, a different arc in those stories? Well, it is. You know, in broadcast television, they really frown against doing episodic uh, television because they wanted the option to be able to juggle the shows around. Mm -hmm. If there was a show that you made fifth that they really liked, they wanted to move that up in the uh, on-air schedule to like second. Mm -hmm. So if you had to follow a continuous storyline you couldn't do that but it's completely different with with the streamers and um so that in in that regard yes it's it's very different on cheers we used to have basically an overall arc where we would say here's where we want sam and diane to be at the end of the season and we would you know, move that along, but not to such a degree where it would throw off the, um, you know, the continuity of the show. In terms of act breaks and things, um, yeah, when you're writing a half-hour television show, now there are three acts so that they can get in more commercials, but what we would do in plotting the show is... We would come up with a premise and we would come up with an ending. Then we would come up with what the act break is. And then we would fill in from the start to the act break and from the act break to the end. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't plot out the story in a linear fashion. Mm-hmm. We didn't go, okay, this, then this, then this, then this, then this. Mm-hmm. But when you're uh, plotting out a streaming show, you are able to do it that way. And the business model is different now. I, I remember when I started in VC, Grant Tinker was the head of uh, the the entertainment division there, and he had I the loved gr- him. yeah he had the great because you worked at MTM right at least for a while. Mm-hmm. He, he had the great ability to be able to sense the success of a show even if it didn't happen right away. Like he sat on Hill Street Blues, he sat on Saint Elsewhere, and those didn't light fire uh, immediately. But he had the sense to sit on them now. Uh, I mean, if a show is weak after the second episode, they don't care how many they've bought, they'll yank it. Streaming, they'll buy eight to ten episodes up front, and so the people that produce the shows don't really, the the success isn't as important as it was on network TV because they've already gotten paid, right? And it's up to the streamer. Right. You know, the problem with that, you know, when we do a show and we have a studio audience, So you're getting feedback from the audience and then the show airs and you're getting more feedback. So it allows you, especially early on in a show, to make mid-course corrections and shape things. 
And every so often, there'll be an unexpected breakout star, like, say, Henry Winkler as the Fonz on Happy Days, Mm -hmm. or Michael J. Fox on Family Ties, or Urkel. And you're able to go, okay, we were going to go in a certain direction here, but why don't we shift and really make the uh, Michael J. Fox character the center of more of these stories because Mm -hmm. that's what's really working. When you're doing a streaming show and you make all 10. Yep, exactly. That's interesting. You know, Michael J. Fox is fantastic in show three and four, and in shows five, six, and seven, he has four lines. Yeah. You know? Yeah. How about MASH, where it was one camera, no audience? You, How did you gauge public reaction, and how were you able to parse which stars were sort of breaking out and which you could write to? Well, we came in the middle years, so it had already oh, okay. been established, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we basically were just, you know, Larry just said, here, drive the car for a while. (laughs) Um, But I remember we were there the year that introduced Charles. And the first night, his premiere, we were all at one of the producer's house having a first night party. And I'm sitting on the couch next to David. And as the show's about to come on, I said to him, a half hour from now, your life will change forever. Wow. You're talking and about David Ogden Stars. Yeah, David Ogden Stars. Okay. Yeah. And he kind of poo pooed me. It's a television show. I said, okay. Three days later, he came up to me on the set and he went, oh my God, <laughs> I yeah. can't go into a market. <laughs> this is unbelievable. And I said, that's episode one, Betty. Yeah, <laughs> that's episode yeah. one. Back in the day, you were talking about a forty million people. How Mash still, I think, holds the record for the largest closing episode. Yes. in the history yeah, of television, yeah, like one hundred twenty-six million. Holy cow! They make a big deal that the succession finale got four million people. I know that's yeah, a different. You know, deal, back in our day, you know, Lyndon Larouche <laughs> uh, paid specials would get four million people. <laughs> uh, that's beautiful. So you're such a, a radio purist that your podcast has a jingle. Yes. And actually, I have a friend, one of those jingle geeks yeah. went on to own a jingle company. Wow. <laughs> I mean, what, what was your favorite even jingle? bigger geek than me. What was your favorite jingle company? Podcast, he said, I'll make some jingles for you. Oh, so, that's where you got the okay, back in the radio. Yeah. Back in the OKJ days, what was your favorite uh, jingle company? Pam's or Pepper Tanner? Oh God, oh. Pam's. Yeah, Pam's Pepper was... Tanner sucked. Dallas, Dallas, right? Can you sing yeah. any of yeah, their it was, greatest? It was Pam's and Los Angeles. Nice, nice. Can you do? Can you sing one <laughs> of their big, bigger hits? <laughs> no, I say I like. The I real was the Johnny Mann singers, mm-hmm. and and I used to kid Johnny Mann that they should go in concert at the Hollywood Bowl. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it would be a three-minute concert. <laughs> they would do all their hits. Uh, now, Ken, you know, do you... 93 re- KHJ, oh, Golden, yep. thank you, Encore. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, do you, either of you two, remember a, a year of during my childhood when the trend was to sing the the call letters over the intro of the record? 
And so because of the way music locks into your memory, there's certain songs that like by the Carpenters that when I hear the song and I hear the intro, I hear the jingle singers singing, you know, mm-hmm. WKBW, the music people. <laughs> and, you know, it's like four part harmony, like a like a Carpenter. And then and then Karen starts singing with it. Do, do you know which I, jingle? I, com- do, rem- I okay. do remember those. In fact. I, along with a couple of friends, I put some friends together and we did a spoof on that. <laughs> did oh, you? And that we made a demo that we sent out to radio stations of Sewer Sound Productions. And <laughs> it was just, they were just awful and terribly off key. And, you know, and the lyrics were, were just terrible. And, uh, and we sent that around. And it got passed around radio circles. Oh, yeah. my God. See, yeah. that's how that's how funny stuff got shared before the Internet is like, yeah, you'd actually dub it and then send it like I was in the room when the Casey outtake got duplicated and and shared because it was something that Paul Liebeskin had. He had smuggled out of Casey's studio in his shirt I'm sure you've heard it by now, Ken, right? Oh, yeah. Where he goes off. About, you're giving me stuff about dead dogs. Yeah, and- <laughs> goddamn dead dog dedication. Yeah. So Paul had stolen it, and when we were recording the, the Rick D's Weekly Top 40, when Rick would get into bad mood, which was often, uh, Paul would play that, to, to and Rick would laugh at somebody else being an asshole, you know. <laughs> and then uh, my partner at, at Premier, Steve Lehman, walked in and said, Hey, Skin, uh, can I borrow the, you know, the Casey outtake? Uh, no, it's not supposed to leave the studio. Oh, no, I'm just going to play it for my buddy and I'll bring it right back. He took it into his studio, duped it. And the rest is, you know, what every viral, as they say, as yes. they say, old I, school viral. I worked in the early 80s. I did weekends at KFI and Steve followed me. Steve Lehman. Yeah. Oh, wow. Small world. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's cool. That's super cool. All right. Do we have anything that you would like to share with our audience before we close? I have to ask him one question. Sure, sure. What's the greatest staff you worked on where it was just magic and everybody cooperated and loved one another? The first season of Cheers, Glenn and Les Charles, it was a small staff, actually. It was the full-time staff was Glenn and Les and me and my partner, David Isaacs. But one day a week, we had David Lloyd. Mm. And one day a week, we had Jerry Belson. Mm. And uh, that was, I, I, I felt like, oh, my God, this is the Algonquin Round table, <laughs> ni- 1982. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. And Jerry that, worked that with was, uh, That Gary was Marshall. the greatest staff. Yep. And when I worked on the Tony Randall show, it was uh, Tom Patchett and Jay Tarsus, who had been the showrunners of um, the Bob Newhart show. Mm. Gary Goldberg, who went on to uh, All, uh, produce uh, Family, Family Ties. Ties. Yeah. And Hugh Wilson, who went on to do WKRP in Cincinnati, and directed Police Academy and things like that. And uh, and again, me and David, we were the baby writers. That that was our staff. So you were like the was... outsiders of write, of writers. Like yeah. everyone went on to greatness. We wow. need to hear a Tony Randall story because I a lot of people just maybe don't understand the the magic that was Tony Randall and or and or we don't know if he was anything like that in real life. You know, I love Tony. Um, but <laughs> here's the Tony Randall story. And again, I, I love him. He was so professional. He knew everybody's lines. 
not just his own, but we write a script for the Tony Randall show that Patchett and Tarsus like so much they put us on staff. We come on staff and it's a hiatus week and they get our script ready to go. And when we come back, our script is the first one up. So we all converge, have a table reading of the script and we meet Tony and the rest of the cast and everybody else. And uh, we're about to start. And Tony says, before we start, I would like to say something. Uh He stands up and he goes, during the hiatus week, I was in London. And I had the opportunity to watch a lot of British sitcoms. And I can say, categorically, (laughs) after watching those British sitcoms, what we do here is shit. (laughs) And then he sits back down. It's like, okay, Tony Randall show written by Ken Levine and David Icke. Oh, (laughs) my God. That was was our intro. But, you know, at the time I was single and I would bring girls to the filming. And after the filming, I would take them down to meet the cast. We'd go to Tony's dressing room. And Tony was always... Like, oh, my God, we couldn't do this show without Ken. Some of the best jokes in tonight's show were Ken's. I mean, Tony was my wingman. Who can say that Tony Randall is your wingman, right? You know, that guy, you know, just as a kid watching that guy uh, uh, on whatever variety shows or whatever I was watching, there was just something about him that, you know, it was aspirational to someday know someone this colorful. (laughs) Like, he told this story that sticks out in my mind where he's at some play and you know, and it's like he's a, he's Tony Randall, but he's at some play with a bunch of people and they're like, hey, Tony, I'd like you to introduce you to, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so. And he says to the person, I already know enough people. <laughs> and I'm like, I want to know a guy that says things like Comfortable this. enough to say that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah, he was, he was a beauty. I, I, I really did love him. That's so that's so cool that that, you know, and now you're you're telling stories to young people the way Gary Owens used to tell to us about, you know, the folks that you've encountered and uh, like the uh, the uh, backstage of it all. So, yeah, I'm one of the old guys. now. So you started doing stand up. I saw it on Facebook. It's true. So tell us a little bit about that before we close. Okay. well, I. I've done improv for like 40 years, Mm -hmm. but I I never had any real desire to do stand-up. And when I started my podcast, now seven years ago, I thought as a David Letterman-type stunt, I would do a stand-up routine. And uh, a friend of mine was a stand-up comic, and she got me in on an open mic night in some club in the Valley. And I did my five minutes, and when I got on stage, everyone looked at me like, what is grandpa doing here? No, you don't look like anybody's grandpa. <laughs> but uh, they slowly started coming around and there's, you know, a couple of chuckles and then some laughs and then some bigger laughs. And, you know, and I built to a big punchline and, and it got a big laugh. And the other comedians, there were saying, oh, so were you bitten by the bug, man? And I was like, no. <laughs> so it's like, I'm I'm done. And uh, recently, I've become friends with Wendy Liebman, who is a wonderful She's maybe the single nicest person in the business. Yep. And had her on my podcast. And she said, I'm putting together a show at Flappers in Burbank. Come on and do 
stand-up again. Wow. And I don't know what possessed me to say, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I got to do I got to do 10 minutes. And I figured, you know what, this is a real club. Um, what the heck? You know, this this isn't some crappy Monday night open mic with three yeah, people. It's a so, good show. So I'll 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 do it. And I'm on with like six regular professional comedians. You know, you looked them up on uh, Google and uh, this one, you know, has uh, a set when he was on Seth Meyers. And, this, mm -hmm. you know, they've 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 all worked. They're yeah. all, you know, professional. Mm -hmm. So I got a little 10 minutes ready to go. And uh, this was a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I find out that there's a special guest who is going to be on two comedians before me. John Mulaney. Uh -oh. Uh oh, good night. Thank you. I had to follow John Mulaney. Mm -hmm. That means you're a professional comedian because when you work in the clubs, that happened to me with Jerry Seinfeld and and Brad Garrett and whoever, you know, goes into the improv or the comedy store. As soon as they walk in, they want to go up and do a set. Yeah, I'll do 15 minutes. And then they do a half hour and they bump every mid-level comedian down the line. And you can't follow these people because their stardom alone ruins the room. So it's a very right. hard thing to do. So you've really overcome a huge speed bump in you're becoming a professional comic. I'm sure yeah, you're going to be. Well, and they, they did pay me. I got paid $25, so I'm a professional comic. There you yes. go. And I can now say that John Mulaney opened for me. That's right. <laughs> it happened. And I think all of the years of sports casting and now podcasting just made like your fear factor is it's scrunched so that you can get up there and know that, like, oh, I can be myself and that's going to be enough because you've been communicating into a microphone for many, many years. Yeah, I was sort of surprised. I basically told stories, um, but I I was surprised at how comfortable I felt. Wow. You know? I'm sure you and were. And maybe it's because, like, you know what? If I bomb, so what? It's, it's, it's I don't know who these people are anyway. So. <laughs> I can yeah. go home. No, but I decided to tell stories. People love jokes stories. along the way, but they all had punchlines, and they were all real stories because I figured – these other comedians have worked on their acts and they've like honed their material and they've done every joke 30 times mm -hmm. and you know they've uh eliminated the ones that don't work and they've rewritten jokes to make them better and everything. and if i come on and just try to do that i'm going to look even more amateurish than i am i'm sure so you were great i thought you know just be myself and do something different and it uh it worked out great. Now I could go on tomorrow night and bomb horribly no. doing the same material. Yeah. It's like that. golf. You know, you but chase it's the like dream. It's like yeah. you, 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 you do it good once and it keeps you coming back. And then you yeah. have a horrible it's experience. Adrenaline. And the horrible experiences are always uh, longer lasting than the good experiences. Oh, I'm sure they are. <laughs> well, I'm going to highly recommend Ken's podcast, Hollywood and Levine, and his book, The Me Generation by Me. Uh, growing up in the 60s, so I have that title correct? 
Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah, no, it's just it's just fantastic. And the book on tape he reads, so you can just have him talking to you for the next. And there's a joke every thirty eight seconds. Straight hours. Yeah. <laughs> That's the selling point right there. Here come your closing credits. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Media Path Pod, and on Facebook, where our show page is Media Path Podcast, and our Facebook group is Media Path with Fritz and Weezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel. Channel, Media Path Podcast. And you can write to us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy the show, please give us a nice rating in Apple Podcasts and talk about us if you would be so kind on social media. You can sign up for our saucy rag of a newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com. We want to thank our wonderful guest, Ken Levine. Our team includes producer Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Bill Filippiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Lori DeWall, Garrett Arch, Nick Broussard, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Planker here with Fritz Coleman and Ken Levine. Be well and wise, and we will see you along the media path. What a treat, Ken. Thank you so, so much. Oh, my pleasure. When is this going to drop? Thursday. Great. Thursday morning. We'll send it to you. I'll send you links. And yeah, thanks. thanks. Are you fun. working on anything now? Um, I'm, working on, I'm working on a play. I'm noodling with a play. Wow. Um, and I've got a number of other plays that are out there and published and...